Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. It's a podcast where we summarize modern medical legal threats to doctors in 15 minutes or less. The goal is to allow you to continue practicing great medicine with peace of mind. And I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical and Dental Justice, an organization dedicated to protecting physicians from frivolous lawsuits, internet libel, unwarranted demands for refunds, and a gazillion other medical legal threats. I'm joined today by my co-host, Mike Sakopoulos, who serves as our organization's general counsel. Glad to have you with us, Mike. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. If you're joining us for the first time, here's a quick rundown on our organization's history and objectives. Medical justice has been protecting physicians from frivolous litigation since 2001. Since inception, we've worked with over 12,000 doctors. We've seen a lot and we've learned a lot. This podcast exists to share this knowledge with you so you can take steps today to protect yourself from the forces that want to prey on you, your practice, and your livelihood. Dr. Siegel, if you'll do the honors. Great, let's uh, dive in. So today is going to be yet another case from the most frivolous lawsuit contest that we, um, um, that we propelled not too long ago. We had one 10 years ago and we had scores of, of submissions and this time was no different. We had scores of submissions for the most frivolous lawsuit which shows that plaintiff lawyers still love doctors. So let's jump into this particular case. It's related to a gastroenterologist um, who had a patient that was deaf mute. So this patient's lawyer, you can see that he was sued down the road, had repeatedly sued doctors and other businesses for not having a certified uh, person available to translate, um, to give uh, signs to, uh, to the patient who, um, who was deaf mute. Anyway, this patient presented with a diagnosis of hepatitis C, and this was before the newer therapies had actually been released. I mean, some of the newer therapies allow for a near cure or total cure, but this was in the good old days. Anyway, the gastroenterologist had staff at the office whose son was deaf, so this woman was beyond adept in sign communication. She knew how to do it well. So the doctor used her as the interpreter and also took a significant amount of time to write all the questions down and allow the patient to respond in writing too. And everything was part of the medical record. When the staff member was not in the office, the practice uh, actually used a service which worked over the phone and that actually worked quite well. This patient had a liver biopsy performed and everything uh, was recorded and communicated in the exact same way. At one point, the patient uh, communicated with the doctor's staff through the phone service and was, <laughs> and was rude and obscene. And it's hard to imagine exactly how a deaf-mute patient was being rude and obscene, but suffice it to say, this is how the submission was sent to us. Anyway, this pattern repeated itself with the deaf patient over time, being um, incredibly obscene to the woman who was doing the translating. And ultimately, the doctor terminated the patient's care and gave him one month to find another provider and also gave him the names of three other potential uh, providers. In the interim, the doctor completed the treatment um, of the patient's hepatitis C, which, um, which failed in all, um, it, it failed, but actually all aspects uh, of care were within the standard uh, of care. 
So next, uh, the patient with his lawyer files a lawsuit claiming the practice never used a certified sign language per person, and thus, thus he actually, in this case the patient, understood nothing regarding his care. He had a liver biopsy, supposedly without his knowledge of anything. Uh, the insurance carrier uh, settled the case for $30,000. Not a giant amount, but it's not a nothing uh, amount uh, either. So there are, there are some lessons learned associated with this particular case, and we'll start off by saying be careful uh, with interpreters. Federal law mandates that, uh, that you do provide an interpreter for a, uh, for a deaf patient, and in conversations with doctors, I have found that this federal law drives, drives uh, doctors crazy because frequently the cost of an interpreter will exceed what you would get paid for seeing the patient. So if it were just a... Uh, run-of-the-mill, plain vanilla office visit, yeah, you probably will pay out more than you receive. But if the patient goes to surgery, for example, or has procedures, then you would almost certainly be in the black. Uh, but as I point out, it, it cuts both ways because federal law also creates tax incentives to hire deaf employees. So, um, you know, it does cut both ways. And many practices will use uh, relatives of the patient to provide uh, translations uh, with a patient's consent, or they'll use their own employees who might understand sign language. Just need to be careful that the relative can provide useful sign language and the patient understands. And the other issue is whether the patient will actually be candid with the relative doing the interpretation. So for general medical issues, probably not, not a problem, but you can imagine as we get into more sensitive areas, for example, a rectal exam or a, um, or, um, a pap smear um, or a breast exam, um, things that I would consider more delicate than average, the question is whether the, um, the family member now serving as the interpreter will actually be doing um, a proper translation. Mike, what do you think about this? Well, <clears throat> there's, there's a lot to, to, to un unpack here. Uh, I'm having a little trouble getting past the, the rude and obscene without further explanation. I mean, the mind just reels with possibilities, but I know that that's not, that's not why we're, that's not why we're here. So let's talk a little bit about the, uh, a family member, because this is clearly tempting and oftentimes um, a very good solution to a patient that comes in with a, with a, a disability, having a family member interpret. And, disability can, can include just uh, language proficiency, right? Maybe you have a patient that is not, um, not fluent in English and you have a, a family member uh, translating. And there have been some cases out there that say the child of the patient uh, doesn't have enough medical background to do a mm -hmm. proper interpretation. So I think that you're on shaky kind of dangerous ground by doing it. I get the idea of uh, it's, it's convenient and oftentimes the patient feels more comfortable with a family member, um, but it is dangerous because you have no way of knowing the quality of that translation uh, going through to your, to your patient. So, um, you know, warning, uh, warning flag there. Uh, these issues extend beyond your exam room to your website. There's ADA requirements for your website. Mm -hmm. I simply raise that as, um, as, an, as an issue. What, is, what does that mean, Mike, in terms so, of ADA for a blind patient or so, a deaf patient? Right. So um, if, 
your audio, if your website has audio, then it would need to have closed caption so someone who is deaf could read what the audio is, is doing. Um, and conversely, if the patient is has sight Im impairment, low vision, uh, there are software that if you run the cursor across it, will it will pronounce the uh, the pros on the on the site to the patient if your site is compatible with that and most are now uh, this technology has been around for well over a decade uh, but it's it's something to check and I think that there's some free sites uh, on the internet that you can see how well your website does on a disability ranking it'll it'll scan your site for you at, at no cost so you might want to um, you might want to check check that out well, why don't we um, why don't we talk a little bit about terminating a patient? Because here we have someone who has behaved badly mm -hmm. and is being is being dismissed from from a practice. And Dr. Siegel, have you seen that be uh, problematic for uh, members of medical justice in the past? Yeah, there's no doubt that um, while most patients are in good standing with the practice, and most patients not just like their doctor, they love their doctor. Every so often, a practice will see a patient that they wish they had never um, let through the door. For whatever reason, there, there were no red flags identified, and the relationship evolved, and the patient uh, or their family, they were just abusive in a way. Now, I do think that most people can behave poorly on occasion. That's not who they are. It's just a, it's just a snapshot of their life and not a movie. And given that a lot of medical care is associated with times of stress, you know, if a patient is given uh, sure. a diagnosis that they're quite ill or that they may not have a long time to live, you can well imagine why that would, you know, put them into a tizzy. But there are some people that are just malignant in terms of, not with their disease, but in terms of their personality. And when the, when the magic is passed, it's time to terminate the relationship. You just need to do it properly. So um, first question is, is the patient in the middle of a treatment plan? So if the patient is in the middle of receiving care, you're going to need to figure out how to pass the baton off to someone else. Okay, so let's say, for example, the patient scheduled for three rounds of chemotherapy. After the second round, the patient um, becomes a malicious sociopath and is abusive to the practice. You still have one more round of chemotherapy. You I, I think in that particular case, you can't just give them a letter saying, you're gone, we'll care for you for 30 days. Um, and here's a list of doctors in the, um, you know, from the County Medical Society you may want to call on your own. I think if the patient um, has a serious condition and is in the middle of an obvious written treatment plan, you probably need to either suck it up and continue taking care of that patient until they finish the treatment plan, or find another doctor who will agree to take that patient. Now, that's no easy task because if the patient is, as I described, a malicious sociopath, um, and if you like this other doctor, you're, you're passing off your malicious sociopath to, to the other doctor. So it can be very challenging. Certainly, it's a lot easier to do in a larger metro area where you're more anonymous and maybe you can send them to an academic medical center where they become a quaternary referral uh, center. Um, but in that particular case, you need to figure out how to pass it off. Now, if, if a patient has finished a treatment plan and somehow there's nothing left to be done, uh, then you have the option of just doing a bread and butter termination of the relationship. Now, the Board of Medicine says you can't 
abandon uh, a patient without following some formalities. And the generally accepted formality is that they need 30 days notice. So um, if they're getting refills of medication, you need to at least finish that refill you know, and not make sure they run out in two days. And you need to let them know where they could potentially find another doctor in that 30-day window. And typically the note that goes out says, you know, we're terminating the doctor-patient relationship. I'm available to see you for the next 30 days for urgent and emergent uh, conditions only. That way it's not just any call that you'll take. It has to be a particular type of call. So it narrows the universe. And, and by then the patient likely has gotten the message that um, they should they should be looking for for another uh, practice becomes a little um, more difficult in areas where there really isn't another person who could take that patient. So if you are the only subspecialist in a community that doesn't have a similar subspecialist for another hundred miles, you probably need to be cautious about how you terminate uh, that relationship. But if you live in a larger area and there's no shortage of people that could. Uh, that, that could serve that role um, and take care of the patient, then you're probably on much safer ground. Mike, what do you think? Um, I think you're absolutely right. So one of the things that I like to tell practitioners is if you're thinking of terminating the patient, why don't you run past seeing if you can gracefully have the patient exit on their own with the line about you're clearly unhappy with me or with my practice and you deserve to have a physician that you have have confidence in and you feel comfortable around um, maybe you'd, you'd be happier someplace else now will they accept that invitation maybe maybe not if they do great that that alleviates a number of things that you have to do if not, let's say that, that, they, um, that they just want to stay and in, in, in cause misery to you and your staff. Fine, then we have to think about how to, to transition them out. And you're right, we need to send them a letter. I tell you, send that letter certified because you have to prove that the patient received the letter, right? Don't just drop it in the general mail because you can imagine this type of person is going to say, what letter? I never saw it. And you're back to running a new 30-day clock. So... I, I do think that if you if the if it's the patient's decision to leave, there's no 30-day window. Once they've decided to move on, just document that um, you've had a discussion with the patient. The patient has made their own decision to find another doctor, and if they have the name of another doctor, um, that's great. And words that sometimes help um, include fresh start. That uh, you'll be able to get a fresh start with another doctor. Um, and if the patient is demanding some type of treatment that you don't feel um, makes sense for the patient, you can use language such as, look, we, we think the patient should have complete and total autonomy to decide the type of care that they want. It's pretty clear you're not comfortable with the type of care I'm giving. You probably should um, work with another doctor who is more likely to give the type of care that uh, you are looking for. And in doing so, you can then... Uh, push the decision onto the patient, may not change the outcome, but it certainly allows them to make uh, the call. And it'll probably, it's probably a pill that goes down a little bit easier if it's their decision as opposed, to the, uh, as opposed to the doctor unilaterally ending the relationship. It's the, it's not you, it's me conversation, <laughs> right? So um, let's see, well, hopefully that's right. You don't get stuck with the 30 days. And if it's the patient's decision, hopefully there's less animosity. Uh, but let's take a situation where 
it's not the patient that's behaving badly, but they, they have a family member who is just really insufferable. And we probably all dealt with this, right? You may even like the patient, may have a good relationship, but that family member is always there just um, stirring up a trouble left and right, uh, heckling your staff, you know, all kinds of things. Actually, what do you uh, advise in that, that situation? Yeah, the question is, are they a package deal or will the patient go solo? I mean, what you're trying to do, and we'll say in this particular case, it's the spouse that's always stirring up trouble and the patient is someone that you respect, you like, you may even love. Um, how do you deal with this? You can have a candid conversation with a patient, giving him a heads up, saying, look, you're my patient. I'd love to take care of you, but it looks like your spouse always comes with you and stirs up trouble. I can't have that. It's very disruptive to the office. So we've got two choices. One is that you come solo. Don't come with uh, anyone. You can certainly bring whatever information I give you back to your family, but I'm only going to deal with you. So that's option A. The other option is to say, look, if you truly are a package deal, it's time to terminate the relationship. And, you know, it just follows the same formalities we were talking about previously. So you don't, you don't have to admit the entire family into the exam room. If you want to do so, that's great. It's your choice. But if you find that uh, it's perpetually difficult and making it even more challenging to take care of your patient, uh, you can give the patient the choice. Either come solo or, um, or I'm going to terminate the relationship. The ultimatum. Okay. Um, I think that that's right. I know we're, we're pushing up against our, our window here, but this case also raises issues of settlement without a provider's consent, right? Here it sounds like tens of thousands were paid on a case mm. that potentially was um, the, the, the provider didn't, didn't owe any money whatsoever. And this may be a discussion for when we have a little bit more time, but providers need to know that there are insurance policies out there that will allow for them to consent to settlements and other policies out there, professional liability policies that do not give the right to the provider to consent to a settlement. And then a company can just settle the case for whatever without your permission. And yeah. And even with a consent, I mean, I think ideally most doctors have or want a consent to, to settle clause, meaning that the doctor has to give their permission for the carrier to settle a case. But even in those cases, uh, or even in those policies, you will see language with something called a hammer clause, um, which states that if the other side makes a settlement or if a settlement is possible and you withhold your consent, if ultimately this goes to trial and the, the ruling or judgment um, is for a dollar amount far larger than what it could be settled for, with this particular clause, you may be individually on the hook for the over it. So if, for example, the case could have been settled for $10,000 and you say, no, 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 I'm not going to allow this to happen. And it goes to trial and ultimately a jury rules against you to the tune of $100,000, you may be individually liable for the delta, in which in this case, it's 100,000 minus 10,000, which is $90,000. Um, not an insignificant chunk of change. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. 
Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of Medical Justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N-F-O-N-F-O news at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.